This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. He was a journalist, the Lord Mayor of London at the time of the 2012 Olympics, one of the leading voices in favour of Brexit, the UK leaving the European Union. We're talking about Boris Johnson. His ambition was to become British Prime Minister. And he reached number 10 Downing Street in July 2019. But since then, it has been one disaster after another. The handling of the COVID crisis being the major problem. And that led to the crisis he finds himself in now for attending a party at number 10 Downing Street during the COVID lockdown. And rather unfortunately, the night before Prince Philip's funeral. What might have been an innocuous event in other times has become a major scandal and may lead to Boris Johnson's eventual departure from the Prime Ministership. How did it get to this point? Why has someone so ambitious for the top job been so comprehensively comprehensively unsuited for it? Or did COVID just totally disrupt what might otherwise have been a successful Prime Ministership? To explain all that and more is Professor Tim Bale. He is Professor of Politics at the Queen Mary University of London and author of UK political books such as The Conservative Party from Thatcher to Cameron and the British General Election of 2019. Tim, welcome to Overnights. Hello there. Let's start at the end, possibly. Uh, How long has Boris got, or do you think that he can tough this out? That some people were saying, well, there's been a defection and there's, you know, always some sort of, you know, disgruntlement on the back bench, but there always is uh, when you're in government, perhaps. Uh, Or do you think that his time is rapidly running out? Well, I think he is in a lot of trouble this time. I've always been a little bit reluctant to predict his imminent demise because he is the Teflon Houdini, um, the greased albino piglet, as he's been called by some of his colleagues. He does manage to uh, get out of scrapes in a way that most politicians, I think, wouldn't be able to. Uh, But this time, uh, I think the allegations of partying in number 10, or whether he was at those parties or not at those parties, uh, and uh, his reaction to them, uh, in other words, to uh, deny them rather unconvincingly, um, has really got him into trouble with the British public, um, primarily, I think, because it feeds into uh, the suspicion that it's one rule for them and one rule for the rest of us. And given that he, in some ways, rose to prominence in the last few years because of his very populist uh, um, attitude and way of thinking, you know, the idea that somehow he was this tribune of the people against these unrepresentative elites, that's really very damaging for him. So uh, I think both the fact of the parties and his rather unconvincing response um, has got him into a lot of trouble. Uh, He's doing very badly in the opinion polls now. His personal ratings, they've never been that great, it has to be said, are really, really appalling now. As bad as, um, for example, Jeremy Corbyn, who you know used to be the most unpopular British politician uh, since polls first started. Um, and worse than that, for his party, the Conservative Party's rating has taken a real hit as well. It seems to have, if you like, contaminated the Conservative Party brand as well. So, We have a situation in which the Labour Party, which wasn't making much headway against the Conservatives for many months, now seems to have gone into, in some polls, a double-digit lead over the Conservatives. And that's got Conservative MPs thinking, well, what's the point of Boris Johnson? Because the only point of Boris Johnson, in some ways, was to win them an election. And now he's done that. Now he's got them Brexit. If it doesn't look like he's going to win them another one, then why bother? So in Australia, at the state level, since um, COVID has come in, generally uh, governments have been re-elected, in fact all of them have been re-elected, the ones that have gone to the polls, and generally with a, an, an increased majority and a great um, endorsement of, the, um, of, of their uh, you know, plans and the way that they've dealt with COVID. So are people upset also with the way that 
Boris Johnson and the Conservatives have dealt with COVID because, I mean, there's not another election for, well, another two or three years, really. He he won an election, as you know, well, no, you wrote the book on it quite literally, in 2019, and they had a pretty good majority there. So are they worried that they will lose the next election because uh, because of the way they've handled it or just because of Boris? Well, I think there are a couple of things going on there. The first thing to say is that the handling by the British government of COVID has attracted actually quite a lot of criticism. Um, We have one of the highest death rates in the uh, advanced industrial uh, democracies. Uh, And certainly the government's handling of the first wave of the pandemic and indeed the second wave of the pandemic was um, very, very much uh, a subject for criticism. Not so much, obviously, by um, conservative supporters, but by the the public more generally. Uh, So I I don't think that the Conservatives and Boris Johnson himself were on particularly sure ground when it came to uh, COVID. And of course, they also get it in the neck from the other side, because there is uh, a very strong, if you like, libertarian strain within the Conservative Party, uh, which believed that, in fact, the government had overreacted and some of the public health measures that they took uh, were too restrictive, um, were supposedly damaging the economy uh, more than it needed to be uh, damaged. Uh, so in, in some ways, Boris uh, has has had to cope with the fact that many of the general public feel that he made a mess of the the beginning of the pandemic, although they're quite grateful for the way that uh, this country handled the vaccine uh, rollout. And then on the other hand, he's got people from within his own party um, telling them, telling him that he's been um, too restrictive and, and too cautious. Uh, so I don't think COVID, apart from right at the beginning, uh, when he himself got ill, um, has really created the same kind of rally around the flag effect that you've seen in some countries. But even in those countries, to be honest, it it hasn't lasted that long, that rally around the flag effect. And there is a good deal of, if you like, fatigue uh, and impatience um, with the government as well, of course, on the part of people who lost relatives, a good deal of anger uh, about how the the pandemic was handled in this country. Yeah. Um, Paul in Newcastle says... And I wanted to get to this, but we might as well jump into it now. Prior to COVID, the issue was Brexit. Is Brexit still a big issue? I mean, has COVID basically wiped that away? I mean, it, it still needed to be done, and it kind of was done, but there are so many other things you know, associated with Brexit, I'm sure, that still need to be dealt with. But what's happened with Brexit? Well, that is a very good question. I mean... It is true to some extent, obviously, that COVID has taken people's minds off Brexit. But um, when you do survey research on it, you still find that uh, those who voted leave, um, you know, don't generally speaking regret their decision. And those who voted remain still wish that we were in the European Union, although there isn't actually that much enthusiasm now, I think, for rejoining, partly because people just couldn't bear to go through the whole thing in reverse Uh, Again, Um, I don't think, though, Brexit has completely disappeared in the rearview mirror, certainly as a policy um, issue. It it hasn't because we're we're still in the throes of trying to renegotiate the trade and cooperation agreement that we came up with with the European Union with regard to what's happening in Northern Ireland, which is a very kind of complex uh, process. At the moment, Northern Ireland is kind of half in and half out of the European Union in terms of um, customs and the single market. And there are some politicians in, in um, Britain who would like to see uh, that change. So that's still ongoing. Um, we are still obviously um, trying to um, slim down some of the bureaucratic processes that have inevitably come about as a result of us leaving a single market and the, and the customs union. Uh, and there are many economists who would argue that, you know, we have actually done our economy quite a lot of damage yeah. uh, as a result of leaving, which, you know, isn't particularly surprising. I mean, if, you know, you leave your major market, uh, then it's going to be very difficult, I think, to make up for uh, the, the the trade that is inevitably lost through the friction that, that you create. We have, of course, got a government which is 
um, celebrating the um, trade agreements that it's managed to roll over and indeed, in the case of Australia, uh, negotiate. Um, but, you know, they have been quite severely criticised in this country for being more advantageous to Australia <laughs> uh, and some other countries than they Same are. Same argument to- here, they say, oh, no, it's, it's all advantage UK. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, perhaps you, you know, you're bound to get criticism on on both sides. But what what can't be argued uh, in this country is that uh, an agreement with a country like Australia can possibly make up for the trade that we seem to have lost with the European Union. Mm-hmm. But the, the the point I was going on to make is when when you think about the economic damage that's um, done by leaving the European Union, it's not a kind of big bang. Um, explosion it's more like a kind of slow puncture so in other words you know it's really growth foregone if you like and trade foregone Mm. so how much people are really going to notice that in the long term and how much that's really going to do damage to the to the government um, we've yet to see what we haven't seen is kind of massive shortages uh, of the kind that some people on the remain side have predicted. So, I mean, to, to answer the question, I don't think Brexit has completely disappeared. It is still a public policy issue. It is something some people still care about. But certainly in terms of its salience, in other words, how important people feel it is, uh, it, it's certainly reduced, uh, as in some ways you would expect. Indeed. When you are perhaps battling for your own life, then uh, you're not too concerned about what's going on in Europe, perhaps. Let's go to uh, David in Brisbane. Good morning, David. Uh, Good morning. Yes, look, my question is, you know, obviously uh, there are still some issues with uh, Brexit. Um, You know, the fishermen feel like they've been lied to. The um, northern um, farmers and uh, so on feel that they've been lied to with regard to subsidies. Um, And then, of course, um, you've got, you know, Britain has experienced uh, problems with uh, you know, lorry drivers yeah. and a whole range of other things. But on top of that, uh, the handling of uh, COVID, and of course, I, I think that the uh, that the party is really the straw that's broken the camel's sure. back. So I'm assuming that the Tory party have a leader in the wings. Uh, would you know who that leader is? And I'm guessing with, what, two years before the election that they need to make a decision as to whether or not they go with Boris or actually install somebody else and bed them in before the election. All right, good question, David. So it's always foolish of a political party to get rid of a leader unless they have one ready to go. Who are the main candidates and is anyone already jockeying for position, do you think? Certainly they are already jockeying for position. Um, There are a lot of stories in newspapers about um, potential candidates uh, whining and dining uh, Tory MPs um, and you will find that they are already increasing their media presence uh, and have been doing actually probably for a couple of months now. Uh, the, the two most obvious candidates are um, somebody who might be familiar to Australians if they follow this kind of trade issue, uh, the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, who was the um, Trade Secretary, who did a lot of boasting about the uh, trade deal with Australia. Uh, she, uh, I think, is pretty popular with the membership and as much as uh, member surveys can can tell you anything. Um, uh, the main candidate, as far as the public is concerned, I think, is the finance minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak. Uh, and he is actually one of the most popular politicians in the country, although, you know, that's all relative. Politicians aren't particularly popular in this country, but he has unbelievably got a net positive rating, even if it's only plus seven which compares pretty well with uh, with Boris Johnson. Um, he uh, the reason for his popularity is partly because during the the pandemic um, he was in charge of the subsidies given to businesses and households in order to get them through um, COVID, um, which involved giving out an awful lot of public money. Uh, and of course, someone who splashes the cash in some ways and, and rescues businesses and households from you know what would have otherwise been a terrible situation is bound to be um, quite popular. Mm. I, I suspect that that popularity is rather superficial. 
because people don't really know very much about um, Rishi Sunak. And, and actually, like Truss, Sunak is very much a kind of throwback to a more, if you like, Thatcherite style of conservatism, not the kind of, you know, reasonably centrist um, and in some critics would say big state conservatism that Boris Johnson seems fairly comfortable with. Uh, and I think there is a fear on the part of Conservative MPs that if Sunak or Truss were to uh, win the leadership and were to take over from Boris Johnson, uh, that we might see a, a winding back of the government's attempts to um, so-called level up um, the country, to, to give more resources to um, places that have been left behind by growth over a number of decades okay. uh, and they worry that as a result of that they might lose some of the seats that they won from Labour in 2017 and, and 2019 um, because the, the people who switched to the Conservatives in those places uh, did not switch to the Conservatives because they wanted less money um, spent, they switched to them simply because they couldn't stick the Labour Party uh, huh. anymore under Jeremy yeah. Corbyn and they were pro-Brexit What uh if you could just run through, uh, give us an idea of the um, the process by which a Conservative Party leader, or the Prime Minister in this case, is challenged um, in the party room. How does it actually work? I mean, here, I think you know you can just call for a spill sometimes, and, and there's a spill of the leadership, and, and away you go. It's different in the Labor Party. They actually have to have a vote of the parliamentary members and then also the um, the rank and file as well. But what is it in the Conservative Party? If someone wanted to uh, challenge Boris Johnson, what would they have to do? Well, effectively, there wouldn't be a challenge. What uh, needs to happen is that 15, 1-5% of the um, Conservative Parliamentary Party need to write a letter asking for a vote of no confidence in the leader, in this case, Boris Johnson. And that means that uh, on current numbers, that will be 54 MPs out of 360 would need to write uh, those letters. Once that um, no confidence vote is triggered, it takes place a few days later, uh, normally. And all the leader has to do is win a simple majority. Uh, of uh, Tory MPs voting in that no confidence uh, motion. Now, um, you know, technically that's all they have to do. But of course, it's probably the case that you have to win fairly convincingly. If you are only just to win, I think it will be very difficult to carry on because it will be very, very obvious that large numbers of your MPs uh, didn't support you. Um, if Boris Johnson were to lose that vote of no confidence, then he would have to resign and there would be a leadership contest. And this is very important. He would not be able to take part in that leadership contest. So in other words, if you are a leader who loses a no confidence vote in the Conservative Party, that's it. Uh, you can't then take play, part in, in the leadership contest to come. So you would simply be a caretaker prime minister until the Conservative Party got round to okay. choosing another leader. Right. And it does that um, by a series of uh, exhaustive ballots in the uh, parliamentary party, which uh, finish up with just two people. And then those two uh, go out to the wider membership to vote on. Uh, so the, the voting amongst MPs can be sorted within a couple of weeks normally, but the voting uh, among Conservative Party members out in the country normally takes about a month. So if Boris Johnson were to lose um, a no-confidence motion, then it would take uh, the Conservative Party probably six weeks oh uh, before it could elect another leader. So there will be a, quite a hiatus there. The only way that can be avoided, and it has happened in the past, is if the MPs um, can unite around a single candidate and then you don't need the wider membership vote. Which is what I'm sure they want to show that <laughs> there is no division in the party where they've uh, just forced their leader to stand down. I mean, in Australia in the past, people have gone to bed at night with one Prime Minister and woken up the next morning with another one. So um, it's <laughs> a little bit different. Although, you know, Australia, as you would well know, uh, we've seen a lot of Prime Ministers in the last decade or so. We, we, Britain seems to be moving towards that now, maybe with four prime ministers in the last, um, you know, six or seven years. In fact, Owen wants to take us back to that leadership bid in 2016. Owen, good morning. 
Good morning, um, good morning, Rod, and um, greetings to uh, Tim. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Doris Johnson's um, ultimately botched, well, he didn't actually even officially announce, I think, botched leadership bid for 2016. Why did it fail, and do you think that may have benefited him politically in the long term? All right, so... When David Cameron called for the Brexit vote, it was then lost. He, you know, did the honourable thing and and stood down. But Boris stayed out of the race to replace him and Theresa May became Prime Minister. Why did that happen when everybody was saying, well, Boris Johnson, who had led the Brexit campaign, Brexit won, Cameron lost, uh, Boris has to step up and he didn't. Yeah, it was quite a psychodrama, really. Um, everybody expected Boris Johnson to stand in that election. He announced, um, you know, not formally, but that he was he was going to stand. Uh, he had his campaign team all um, sorted out. Uh, the problem for him was that uh, on the evening before he was due to make the announcement officially, Uh, One of the MPs organising his campaign, Michael Gove, who had been um, very prominent, like Boris Johnson, in the Leave campaign, suddenly decided that Boris Johnson wasn't really up to the job and that he was going to stand himself. Uh, With the result that Boris Johnson uh, took fright, um, his campaign team ran the numbers and just didn't believe that uh, he had enough support at that point among MPs to do it. And... um, surprised everybody who'd gone to his uh, um, you know, announcement meeting by <laughs> announcing that he wasn't going um, to take part. And I, I think in some ways that was a smart move because I don't think he would have won in 2016. Uh, Boris Johnson was very much, if you like, the, you know, in case of emergency, break glass candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he, he isn't and wasn't actually that popular among his colleagues. He's not a particularly kind of clubbable person, although the um, general public like to think of him as this sort of affable, um, you know, hail fellow well met kind of guy. He's not particularly comfortable in, in the company of a lot of his uh, MPs. He's not particularly trusted or, or well liked actually among them. Uh, and I think in 2016, um, they realised that there were other possible candidates, uh, which would have made it, I think, quite difficult for him to, to have got through to the um, second stage uh, of the process. So I think discretion was the, the better part of okay. valour there. Oh. And I also think, to be honest, he didn't want to try and lose because he felt that he was only going to have one shot at this. So it would be better Uh, to to pull back this time and and wait for another opportunity. One shot in the locker is what Paul Keating said, and he (laughs) then got two shots in the locker. Uh, Debbie is with us in Brisbane. G'day, Debbie. Hello. How are you, Rod and uh, Professor? Two questions, if I may. So Dominic Cummings, we know that he's released a lot of information about uh, the party gate, and has he done his worst, or could he do further damage to Boris Johnson? Uh, in the lead-up to a possible leadership uh, challenge, and would he actually go as far as trying to destroy the government? Mm. And my second question is, uh, would the European Union welcome the departure of Boris Johnson and even his government? All right, thank you very much for that, Debbie. So Dominic Cummings, I mean, he has released what he says, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, Boris Johnson's thoughts and, and things that he said and some things we've heard, some things we've read. I mean, this would destroy some politicians, and yet Boris sort of keeps going. Yeah, I mean, for the, for those who, who need a bit of background, Dominic Cummings was the man who managed the um, Leave campaign during the Brexit referendum and then went into uh, Downing Street with Boris Johnson when Johnson eventually won the leadership in, in 2019. He was, as it were, his consigliere, as uh, some people like to call it, big fans of mafia movies, I think some of these politicians. Um, but then very badly fell out with Johnson uh, once in Downing Street, particularly over Johnson's handling of the pandemic, which Cummings regarded as completely uh, inadequate. And uh, since then... Uh, He's left Downing Street and has, to be honest, really made it his mission to try and uh, get rid of Boris Johnson simply because he believes that, you know, from experience, 
this guy is simply not up to the job and he's damaging the country and actually has cost tens of thousands of lives. He makes no bones uh, about that. Uh, and Dominic Cummings' role in you know, recent um, allegations has been absolutely pivotal, really. He uh, is the person who many uh, allege has, has, has leaked some of the, the stuff that's come out about parties. Uh, he knows, as it were, where the, the bodies are buried. Um, certainly he and others who are leaking this stuff are doing it very cleverly because they're not leaking it all at one go. They're, they're drip, dripping it out. And so just when Boris Johnson thinks, well, perhaps this is you know, over, there's no more to come out, something else emerges. Uh, so I, I think you know, um, Cummings definitely won't be happy until Johnson has gone and presumably he has all sorts of emails uh, and all sorts of other stuff that you know he and others are willing to use to ensure that the Johnson um, gets into more and more trouble with the British public and eventually his MPs and it is forced out. Um, we'll see if that happens, but but certainly I think you know Dominic Dominic Cummings, having worked with Boris Johnson, um, you know feels that perhaps he was the right man to help get Britain out of the European Union but once he's done that job he really isn't the kind of person who you would want at the helm of um, uh, the the British nation okay. and then on the second question if I may would, yes. would the EU would the EU be keen on on the departure of Boris Johnson um, maybe uh, but actually if you look at uh, prospective successors, most of them are kind of hardcore Brexiteers as well. I'm not sure it would really um, change the dynamic uh, and the relationship with the EU very much at all. Other than uh, I think they would be more likely um, to uh, be the kind of people who the EU could, could trust in a negotiation. I think the problem with Boris Johnson, as far as the EU is concerned, is that they simply don't trust him uh, anymore. Um, so whatever he promises, they take with a huge pinch of salt. And of course, that slows negotiations down. So perhaps things would speed up and we would you know, begin to normalise our relationship with the, the EU if Boris Johnson were prime minister. But I think anyone who thinks that once Boris Johnson is gone, it will be all you know, sweetness and light yeah. between the EU UK has got another thing coming. All right. Thanks very much for that, Debbie. You know, another texter uh, has texted in, didn't sign their name, but please do. Uh, Boris Johnson portrayed himself as a jolly, irreverent oaf. He, he seems to act like a buffoon. He's obviously very intelligent. He's very well educated, has an extraordinary background, but he does act as this buffoon with his hairstyle, his hair is never combed, looks like he combs it with a balloon, uh, he, he dresses you know, in a dishevelled fashion. What's he trying to achieve with that? When most politicians want to look like they fit in at number 10 Downing Street. Well, I think Boris Johnson's stick has always been to suggest that he is somehow more authentic than uh, other politicians. And the way he does that is by seeming not to care very much about his appearance uh, and uh, to distinguish himself in some ways from the kind of, you know, slick politics as normal politicians uh, who, you know, we're more used to in this country. And uh, you know, you've got to say in some ways it has worked because he was the first um, celebrity politician really in this country, I think you could say. I mean, Boris Johnson's early rise to prominence in this country and to public recognition um, came about as the result of his appearances on, you know, TV panel shows uh, and often TV comedy uh, panel shows. And so people first got to know him more as, as it were, as an irreverent buffoon uh, than as a politician. But why um, do people want an irreverent buffoon to lead them? I mean, it, it, we've learned in the last few years that that's not the person. And quite often, <laughs> you're right, someone will appear on TV or they, they're not a politician, but they'll become prominent and people say, well, that's the sort of person we need to be prime minister. And then they become prime minister and they can't handle the job. Well, I'm afraid that is exactly what has happened in some ways. I mean, I remember being asked by journalists, you know, do you think um, 
um, Boris Johnson is going to make a, a, a great prime minister. Is he going to be as good as his hero, Churchill? <laughs> I just had to laugh. I mean, he was always going to be terrible at the job. He is disorganised. He's unfocused. He's not a, a details person. Uh, he you know, often will take the opinion of the last person he's listened to. Um, he doesn't think things through um, particularly well. Um, but... You know, he was what the Conservative Party needed in 2019 in order uh, to get Brexit done and to win them a general election because he has got this kind of charisma um, that appeals to to some people who are fed up with politics as as normal. And, I mean, you could be describing Donald Trump in many ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the parallels between them are sometimes overdrawn because I, I don't think Boris Johnson is. Um, quite as unhinged as, <laughs> as, as Donald Trump is. And, and to be honest, I, I don't think he believes half of the stuff he, he comes out with, whereas I think Donald Trump actually really believes some of the stuff uh, that he comes out with. Uh, I think also he's probably brighter uh, and, um, you know, a, a little bit more liberal than, than, than Donald Trump, but a bit more calculating perhaps than Donald okay. Trump. So, uh, but but yeah, there are some similarities there, I would agree. Let's go back to then, uh, he was born in the US, in fact, born in New York City, um, and grew up in a really interesting family. Um, how important was his upbringing in developing his Euroscepticism as well? Because he really did make his name as a Brexiteer and, and uh, promoting the, mm. the Brexit campaign. Um mm. He spent a lot of time in Europe, I think, as a child, but also uh, as a journalist later on when he, he graduated from Oxford. What was that experience? Why did that experience, did it confirm what he thought or did it open his eyes to the way that Britain should be, you know, not part of Europe? Well, it's interesting because his father was actually someone who worked for the, the European um, Commission. Uh, so, uh, as you say, he grew up... Um, going to uh, a French-speaking school for part of the time. So he does speak that language reasonably well. Um, he was very familiar uh, with Brussels more generally uh, and was always seen as a bit of a Eurosceptic, but not necessarily as someone who ever believed that, you know, Britain wanted to actually or should leave the, the European Union. Um, while he was a journalist, however, what he did discover was that there was a lot of um, publicity and kudos to be made working for a Eurosceptic newspaper like the Daily Telegraph and writing all sorts of um, rather scurrilous stories about the European Union, often involving um, so-called Euro myths about bendy bananas and uh, uh, <laughs> undersized condoms, would you believe? Well, it sounds um, like the Euro sausage that... Uh, <laughs> That got Jim Hacker elected prime minister. Yeah. Well, there are some similarities there. So, so what he realised was that actually, you know, positioning himself as as a as a Eurosceptic was a way of making waves in conservative circles and a, and a way of um, increasing his profile and eventually becoming an MP. So, I, I don't think his Euroscepticism was ever particularly deeply felt, um, but it was much more instrumental in some ways. And, and he really kind of caught the wave of Euroscepticism that broke over the Conservative Party in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Uh, and, you know, because he was seeking a seat um, after being a journalist as a Conservative MP, uh, that, was, that was exactly, I think, um, you know, uh, what he wanted to do, and it was a, a pretty wise move. But, I mean, I think... His Euroscepticism and the depths of his Euroscepticism is probably best judged by the well-known fact that before declaring for uh, the Leave side in the 2016 referendum, he wrote uh, two versions of a, a, an article for the, the, the Telegraph, his newspaper, uh, one giving his reasons for wanting to leave and one giving his reasons for wanting to remain. <laughs> and it would appear that he was in two minds just before he, he you know, made the declaration uh, in the, the summer of, of 2016. So I think he's always seen Euroscepticism as um, something that was useful to him mm. um, rather than something, you know, that was a, a sort of deeply felt, you know, burning um, mission on right. his part. 
He did spend time in Australia at Timbertop in Geelong, where Prince Charles had been as a student, but I think he was teaching there, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, and, and there, there's, <laughs> there's even a bit of controversy about how he described, um, you know, what he what he did there. Right. He tends to, um, let's say, some people would say exaggerate his CV um, slightly. Um, so uh, I think that was a, another instance where where uh, that might have been uh, the case. Um, and he's he's one of these people, and actually he's quite important with the Conservative Party, who um, tends towards this idea of a kind of Anglosphere, a kind of English-speaking people's idea, which was very much you know, the, the Churchillian ideal, that there's somehow uh, still a very important uh, link between uh, the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and uh, South Africa, and of course the United States of America, that in some ways transcends geography uh, and is an important part of um, conservative Euroscepticism, really, the idea right. um, that Britain has a rather more kind of global role to play. Does that explain uh, and- the AUKUS agreement as well? Yes, I think I think there is there is something to that as well as the kind of commercial side of the AUKUS agreement because obviously there there's there's money in it for for the UK uh, as well. But you know there is a strand of conservatism um, that that very much believes that you know we we would be better off being more broadly networked and that you know our um, Commonwealth tradition and some people would even say our kind of imperial tradition. Uh, is something that we need to revive because the you know the fastest growing parts of the world economy are not in Western Europe uh, anymore. You know they are in uh, uh, places like India, obviously the United States, and and even China. Although China, of course, has now become very um, problematic for the yeah, UK as, as it is obviously for <laughs> yes, some other countries, like you mentioned. Indeed, let's go back a bit, George. Good morning. Oh, good morning, Rod. Uh, yes, I just uh, wanted to pick up on what your guest uh, kind of briefly referred to, which is uh, Boris Johnson's father, Stanley, who's a very interesting and colourful character in his own right. And uh, just wanted to ask what uh, influence uh, he thought, uh, uh, how much influence he had on Boris's uh, upbringing and also his politics, as I know he's got him into a bit of trouble uh, uh, for uh, something that I found fascinating is the fact that uh, 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 his paternal uh, grandfather, uh, Stanley Johnson, so that's a great grandfather for Boris, I think, is actually was actually one of the last interior ministers for the Ottoman Empire. Was actually assassinated in the uh, War of Independence uh, for Turkey. I uh, don't know how much yeah. that influenced Boris, but uh, we can certainly ask about that. The interesting thing, isn't it, about uh, Boris's father? And thanks very much for that, George. Uh, Tim Bale is our guest in the UK. Wasn't he into population growth or reducing the number of the, the population? And Boris has had about seven children, so uh, <laughs> I don't know whether he had much of an effect on on Boris. But what about his father? Well, I mean, I, I think you know your your call is right to to suggest that there is an influence there. I mean, on, on the Turkish connection, I wouldn't altogether um, okay. uh, dismiss that. Actually. Okay. Yeah, one of the one of the the things that Boris Johnson has uh, always suggested is that although the the Vote Leave campaign was all all about taking back control of immigration, that he himself could not be seen as some kind of you know racist or xenophobe because after all his ancestors, uh, you know, came from uh, somewhere else, and that of course he he himself was was born elsewhere uh, as well. So that Turkish ancestry it has been something he's he's spoken about. Before, as far as Stanley is concerned, uh, I think most people would say that um, he did have a very profound impact on Boris Johnson during his childhood, um, because basically he, you know, he, you know, was a, as, as some people would describe it, a, a bit of a philanderer. Um, the relationship with Boris's mother was pretty problematic. Um, I think it, it left. Um, Boris Johnson, uh, rather an insecure kind of child who retreated into himself in in some ways. Um, But bizarrely, um, what we found, of course, as you alluded to, is that Johnson has, to some extent, um, repeated the sins of the father in terms of, um, you know, being able to hold together relationships with with people. Um, 
uh, and, and obviously particularly um, women. In, in more recent times, interestingly enough, he, he probably has had an influence as well in the sense that what Johnson has increasingly got into, and it's got him into trouble with some people in his own party, is a more kind of environmental style of conservatism. And that's partly come about because of his relationship with his now wife, Carrie, uh, who's very much kind of environmentalist, uh, a bit of a green. Uh, and, and Stanley actually has those same views as well. And I think they probably have influenced Boris Johnson okay. uh, a little bit. But as I say, that's got him into trouble with a lot of people in his party who you know don't like all this green stuff and regard it as very bad for the economy. But of course, that's an argument that you've got in your own country as well. Indeed. So a couple of other things that have influenced Boris Johnson, Tim Bale is our guest. One is he went to Oxford. Now, that's not unusual. Uh, every British Prime Minister since the war, uh, basically, anyone who's elected uh, from opposition, I think, to the Prime Ministership went to Oxford and a lot of others as well. So no big deal going to Oxford. But nevertheless, it was very influential on his life, wasn't it? And also his religion. He His mother was Catholic. He be, he started out life as a Catholic, became an Anglican, and now back to being a Catholic. And in fact, I think is the first Catholic um, Prime Minister of Britain. So what about his religion and his university life? How did they affect uh, his upbringing? Well, if, if I said his year of scepticism was skin deep, I think... His religion also? Said, yeah. So religion, yeah. I mean, I, I really can't buy the idea that he okay. takes religion or morality particularly seriously. I mean, I think uh, his, his wife, um, Carrie, um, perhaps takes it a little bit more seriously and, and perhaps he was persuaded to... Uh, you know, for the the wedding, yes. um, but I, I really don't think that plays um, very much of uh, a role. As far as Oxford's concerned, clearly that did have an influence on him. For one, it allowed him um, to make his name as a, a great debater and a speaker in the Oxford Union, um, which stands people, some would say, in good stead for you know being a politician. It, it basically hones your speaking skills, your ability to mount an argument, amuse an audience, etc. So the kinds of things that he does quite well now, I think, uh, owe something to, um, you know, what he did um, right. at university. You would also say, actually, the fact that he did not end up as his brother did or even David Cameron did and some other politicians did with a first class degree, missed out on a first class degree rather rankles with Boris Johnson. Yeah, I was Johnson. just going to say, he's still yeah. <laughs> upset about yeah. that to this day. And there's an extent to which probably, you know, he's still trying to prove to all those people that, he, you know, he's just as good as them. I mean, that's a, that's a bit of cold psychology there, but I suspect that that probably actually does bother him and he's determined to outdo uh, those people in uh, later life because he didn't manage to match them as a, uh, an undergraduate. Okay. This is a particularly difficult time, obviously, for the Western Alliance, not only because of what we see with COVID, and that's been disruptive to the entire world economy. Everything that we thought we knew has gone out the window in the last two years, but also an increasingly belligerent Russia. We have Boris Johnson that many people, yourself included, are saying is simply not up to the task of being British Prime Minister. We had Donald Trump. Again, a lot of people saying not up to the task of being president uh, over the last four years. That 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 has disabled, dis, dis, um, well, disabled. It has destabilised the Western Alliance. Why is it, do you think, that at a time when we most need strong, decisive, united leadership, we don't have it? I think it's probably. Um um, reflection, a result of um, the way that politics has gone over the last um, 10 or 20 years. Um, it's a lot more now about people's ability to persuade. Uh, and that, I think, has to do with this um, idea of authenticity and uh, this idea of um, celebrity, uh, which means that we are electing rather different politicians for rather different reasons than perhaps we, we used to. Um, now, it's not necessarily impossible, obviously, and, you know, you can point to some Australian prime ministers of the past to combine charisma with um, capacity. 
but certainly in Trump and, and Johnson, it seems to be a bit of a zero-sum game. In other words, you can't have one <laughs> um, uh, if you want the other. So I, I think it's partly got to do with the, you know, the condition of, of politics. And, and that, I think, has probably... Um, uh, owed something to the rise of social media, uh, perhaps, um, but the rise of um, kind of media more generally, 24-7 uh, media, which means that there's an extent to which some voters really want to be entertained uh, as much as uh, educated, if you like, by their, their politicians. And there's a, a kind of lack of deference uh, towards expertise. You know, we live in a rather more kind of populist age and I think there's an extent to which Johnson, like Trump, has kind of ridden that wave. And also, to some extent, if you can, if you can stoke a wave, stoke that wave uh, as well. Um, but I, I think clearly it is, it is problematic. Now, I don't think the fact that, um, you know, a British prime minister isn't particularly capable is as damaging as, uh, as uh, having a US president who, who isn't uh, very capable or is, you know, unstable or, or difficult, because I just don't think Britain plays the kind of role um, that perhaps it would like to play or thinks it still plays in, in the councils of, um, you know, the, the world, the UN, NATO, um, whatever. But, but certainly, I think most people looking at the situation in Russia would, would probably want to ensure um, that we were led by, a, a, you know, a slightly more serious um, figure. But, you know, of course, there are some people who are, you know, not Boris Johnson fans who, looking at the current situation, would say, well, you know, an incursion by Russia into Ukraine would be the the best thing for Boris Johnson right now, because it will be an enormous distraction. I think that's <laughs> that's a little bit flippant. Uh, but, you know, it's certainly something that some people are, have oh. said over the last few days. Yeah, we've all seen Wag the Dog. Uh, <laughs> yeah, indeed. Let's flip it over to the other side then, um, because we've talked about who might replace him. But there is an opposition leader, Sir Keir Starmer. Uh, it's odd that a Labour leader is a knight, whereas the Conservative leader is not. Um, what what about him? Like, Is he a serious contender? Well, he wasn't thought to be for some months, and I think that probably had something to do with Starmer's lack of charisma. He hasn't got that kind of X factor, that, that sort of secret source that uh, Johnson and some other politicians have got. But it was also due, it has to be said, to COVID, which did present, as it probably did in Australia, actually, opposition politicians with um, a bit of a dilemma. Because on the one hand, there was quite a lot to criticise about the way that the government was handling the pandemic. But on the other hand, um, you know, the opposition and Keir Starmer didn't want to be seen to be carping and criticising just for the sake of it. And of course, it also meant that, you know, as you said earlier, people were just obsessed, understandably, with COVID and weren't paying very much attention uh, to what the, the opposition was saying. Um, however, since, um, you know, Boris Johnson has really run into trouble, um, Keir Starmer, I think, has begun to um, rise slightly in, in people's estimation, although it still has to be said he's not that popular. Um, but if you look at current uh, opinion polls, you know, which sort of delve deep into the, the ratings um, on particular criteria of um, um, politicians, uh, you know, he is seen to be a more serious and substantial figure. And currently he is leading Boris Johnson as being seen as a better prime minister. He's certainly seen as more trustworthy. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that means that he, if you like, passes the so-called blink test. Um, people can, you know, close their eyes and imagine Keir Starmer coming in and out of um, 10 Downing Street and doing a reasonable job. And that's partly, of course, because before coming into politics, Keir Starmer did have a responsible job, which was why he was knighted uh, by the Queen. He was director of public prosecutions, um, you know, the, 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 the state prosecution service and was widely seen to have done a good job there. You know, he ran a very big organisation and, you know, there weren't uh, too many mess ups uh, during his, his time there. And, it, you know, he's quite a difficult job. So, I think, you know, that plays to his advantage. On the other hand, I think, you know, Labour would 
you know, coming back to the point we were making earlier, um, like to have someone who combined charisma with competence, you know, going back to someone like Tony Blair. Um, but, you know, for what he lacks in charisma, he probably makes up in basic competence. And when you're up against a leader who most people now fear isn't particularly competent and isn't particularly serious, that's a, an advantage. Americans love to rank their presidents from best to worst. Where does Boris Johnson rank, even in, you know, 20th, 21st century British prime ministers? At the bottom or near the bottom, do you think? I would think many people would say he was near the bottom. We occasionally have the um, uh, political science profession in this country and and historians actually um, surveyed by other academics uh, as to, you know, the the relative positions of various prime ministers. Um, I would have thought that in those surveys um, to come and years to come, we would see Boris Johnson ending up um, either bottom or, or near the bottom. Um, I think partly because of his handling of the pandemic. I mean, we do have to come back to the fact that, you know, the, the death toll in this country, depending on how you measure it, is somewhere between 150 and 175,000 people. And the idea that the prime minister had absolutely nothing to do um, with that, I think, won't wash with a lot of people. And of course, we will have an inquiry into that if he goes as a result of you know, party gaze, as it's sometimes called, uh, he won't really have lasted very long in the job. Uh, he will have been seen to have misled Parliament, some people would say, misled the monarch, other people uh, would say, run a fairly chaotic Downing Street operation. Um, and apart from delivering Brexit, arguably won't have that many achievements to his name. So I think it will be quite difficult for Boris Johnson and his fans to argue that he's been a particularly substantial prime minister. But of course, who knows? This being Boris Johnson, he could hang on and be there for another 10 years and achieve all sorts of things. Yeah, Let's not write him off Yeah, We're running out of time. I only got a minute or so left. But, you know, if COVID hadn't come along, if, if Johnson had become leader at some point, did he have a domestic agenda that he actually wanted to get ahead with? I think he did in the sense of wanting to maintain the electoral coalition between fairly affluent voters in the the south of England and less affluent voters in the north of England who were united by uh, their enthusiasm for Brexit. Um, But that meant, as far as the voters in the north of England and the Midlands, actually spending a little bit more money and ending austerity. So I think there would have been a domestic agenda there. Whether Boris Johnson is really particularly interested in that kind of thing, who knows? I think really he's mainly interested in as you said, becoming prime minister and staying prime minister and, and doing anything that he needs to do in order to um, make that happen. It's rather sad, isn't it? With about half, half a minute, 30 seconds to go, do you expect him to be prime minister of Britain at the end of the year? Oh, the $64,000 question. Uh, I think he's in pretty serious trouble now, so it wouldn't surprise me if he were gone by the summer, but let's see. Okay. The killing season, we call it in Australia. (laughs) Tim, thank you very much for your time this morning. We've learnt so much about uh, Boris Johnson and British politics, and I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks a lot, Rob. That's Tim Bale in the UK. Overnights with Rod Quinn on ABC Radio. Radio.